join me, if you would, in the Word of God this morning in 1 John chapter 5. Trust that everyone had a good Thanksgiving. Amen. Anybody eat too much? Yeah, me too. As always. And the scary thing is, is you get to keep eating that same stuff for like a week. And it doesn't, get, it doesn't get any worse, does it? It's like it gets better and better each day. So it's, um, we just have to uh, pray that when it's over, get on that diet and go back the other direction, right? Uh, the Lord is good, amen. We have so much to be thankful for. And um, we can talk about how God has impacted our lives, the things that he's done for us even this week, even this morning. And uh, just to see his hand and his movement and his care and his compassion for his people and, and, and then to be considered his people, right? And to know that we're his, is, it's just such a blessing and an encouragement. And I'm glad to be one of his children. And I'm glad to be a part of Grace Bible Church in Hollister, California. And I'm glad to be a part of your family. And uh, it's just, it's, it's, you can just, you could just think about all the things that God has blessed us with. Or if you want to, you can think about all the negative things too. There's plenty of those to go around as well. But um, you just choose to trust in focusing in on the goodness of our Lord. And uh, it's like they, they've all, they always say that either your God is big and your problems are small, or your problems are big and your God is small. And um, I hope that we are a, a people that would be able to go with our God is big and our problems are small. I appreciate Ron this morning doing worship, even in his um, current state. When he said the staples are coming out, my prayer was he didn't mean like today or like while he's leaving worship, <laughs> coming up tomorrow, okay? So we can be in prayer for him. We can thank the Lord for the um, surgery that it went well, and uh, we can be in prayer for him as he goes through the healing process. And uh, we appreciate him and the work that he does with the worship team on Sunday mornings, amen, and, and Darren as well, and, and everyone that's involved in that. First um, John chapter number five, we continue our study through the book, and in addition to that, we continue our study from last week. So we're, we're in double continuation this morning. And so um, remember that the, the main theme, and we're, we're, we'll read the first five verses of this chapter the main theme of the book is to find, find assurance about our salvation. You know, what are some signs, um, some evidences that a person can look to in their life to confirm that they are truly children of God? And we, li- we live in a culture where uh, there are a lot of what I would call uh, false converts. I think our culture is really saturated with people who are very religious. But when you dig down deep, what you find is you find that there's something missing and usually it's not that they're not spiritual, and usually it's not that they don't go to church on occasion, but oftentimes what's missing is, is those deep things, um, the things that really matter, the things that flow from the heart. Uh, I have a, a, a friend of mine who was a pastor, once was asked one of the uh, church members of his church to come over and do some roofing work for him, and he came over and he did some roofing work for him, and they got into a, a little bit of a disagreement, and this you know, faithful member of the church commenced to cuss out this person for their disagreement. And it was kind of like, you know, here is somebody that on Sunday mornings is very Christian, very 
quote unquote, you know, a servant of the Lord, but when it comes to kind of some of the daily life things, the Monday through Saturday things, when there's a conflict or somebody pushes your buttons the wrong way, then you get to see the, the true inner being, right, that no one wants to see. And, and it's that person that I believe identifies us more than the other person, and, and it's that person that I think we should be concerned about. It's that person that we should be worried about because when we stand before God one day, he's not going to just look at what we did on the outside, but he's going to judge us based upon who we were on the inside. And it doesn't matter how good of a job we do covering that up, but when we get a chance to see it, we get a chance to see it for the purpose of um, dealing with it. And we need to deal with, with what we see about ourselves. We all have something that we see about ourselves. So... Um, let's read together. If you want to follow along, we'll read uh, beginning in uh, chapter 5 and verse 1. The Bible says, Whoever believes or everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. This is a statement of identification. This is the, the essence of the book, um, of the book of 1 John. This is the title of the sermon. These have been born again. It's the title of the sermon um, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. This same exact phrase with a few alterations is found four times in the book of 1 John and 19 times in the book of John. The idea of it is, is that these are evidences of a person being born of God. These are proofs that a person has been born of God. You always want to be careful with this teaching Okay? The reason is, if you get the cart in front of the horse, you have heresy. If, if you say that because we do these things, we have been born of God, you have heresy. If you say we do these things because we have been born of God, you have biblical truth. Does that make sense? It is so important that we get this piece right because people will walk away saying, well, you know what? Because I do these things, I'm saved. No, it's not because you do these things that you're saved. Because now you have a works-oriented salvation. It is, I do these things because I am saved. Because I have been born again. God creates within me a new heart. He takes out my heart of stone. He gives me a heart of flesh. I'm no longer that old person that I was before, but now I am a new creation in Christ Jesus According to Ephesians 2 and verse 10, that that new creation has been created unto good works, right? So what God does is he saves us unto these good works. We don't do good works in order to be saved. We do good works because we have been saved. And it's so important that we get this right. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Believing that Jesus is the Christ is a result of being born of God. Not being born of God a result of believing that Jesus is the Christ. The reality of it is, if we had to do anything to cause ourselves to be born of Christ, there would be no one who would be born of Christ. He accomplishes everything necessary to bring us into God's family, and that as we enter into God's family, then we are ushered into believing. We are ushered into the things that he requires of us, whether it be believing in this context. In another context in this chapter, it is loving your neighbor. In another context, it's living righteously. 
In another context, in the same passage, it's, it's overcoming. We know that we cannot live righteously without Christ being in us, right? We know that we cannot love our neighbor or love our enemy properly without Christ being in us. We understand those things. But what I would submit to you this morning is, is that you can't even believe without Christ Jesus being within you. And you can't even repent without Christ Jesus being within you. The reality of it is there is nothing that God requires of mankind for salvation or for anything that they are able of accomplishing on their own. Zero. I had a friend of mine and a very strong Arminian friend, and their comment to me was this, God would never request something of us that we could not accomplish. And my response to them was, have you ever read the Old Testament? Because no one could accomplish the requirements that God made demand on the Old Testament Hebrew people. And the reason for that was, was to point them to, to, point them to Christ. The law was given as a schoolmaster to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's so important that we get this piece of the puzzle in place as we, before we move on. The Bible goes on to say, And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of the Father. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And you'll notice it goes all the way back up to verse number 1 and verse number 5 are almost identical. Who overcomes the world but he who believes? And he who, be- he, who is it that believes but he who has been born of God? I want to give you a little bit of a rewind from yesterday. Remember that 1 John gives us, so far we've learned four things that identify a, true, a truly born-again person. One who can know that they have been born of God. And those things are loving your neighbor, uh, obedience or submission, a submissive spirit, an obedient spirit, a loving spirit, uh, a a righteous spirit, a a spirit that pursues after that which is right, and then according to this text, a, a spirit that overcomes. It is important to remember, and this is a statement from last week, but it's healthy for us to remember today. It is important to remember that authentic salvation is not evidenced by the following. It is not evidenced by a desire to go to heaven. It is not evidenced by a desire not to go to hell. It is not evidenced by self-righteousness. It's not evidenced by by having a guilty conscience or being religiously involved. It's not evidenced by ceremonial participation, whether it be communion, baptism, or catechisms. These are not evidences of somebody being a child of God. According to God's word, there are very specific evidences that we have that define a Christian. And every one of those evidences, whether you're looking at the book of 1 John, or you're looking at Galatians chapter number 5, or other passages of Scripture, every evidence in God's word given to confirm a person's salvation is something that flows from the inside out. It is not something that is on the outside in. That's why in Matthew 7, 
Jesus says we will know them by their works, right? Is that what Jesus says? We will know them by their what? We will know them by their fruits and their love, which will be their fruits. Think about it. Works is something that we do on the outside. Fruit is something that comes from the, from the inside out. That's how we are identified. We're not identified by uh, ceremonial participation, spiritual disposition, desire to succeed, a desire to be accepted, a relation, desire to have a relationship restored. We are not identified as a Christian by any natural desire or human effort. None of these things identify us as a Christian. We have to look, if we're going to, if we're going to be assured that we are God's children, we have to look beyond ourselves. We have to look to something that is greater than we are. And when we find that in us, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory, when we find that in us, then and only then can we be assured that we are actually the children of God. Now, there are four thoughts that I want to I give you. The first two in review, and then the last two we'll cover fairly thoroughly. And then I want to give you a, a closing thought that could take up more time than the other thoughts. So let's, let's jump right into it. We want to remember, first of all, that every time that this phrase is used in the book of 1 John, the word, the, the word pos in the Greek, it's translated everyone or whosoever. It's translated all in the Greek as well. The implication is, is everyone who has these identification marks is truly, has truly been born of God. In other words, the encouraging thing is, is if God's present in your life, you have nothing at all to worry about. Everyone who has the sign of the Spirit of God living within them, the marks of the Spirit of God on their lives, everyone who has those signs is confirmed as being born again of God. The reason we know that is Philippians 2 tells us that um, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who worked it in us, right? So everything that has worked out of us spiritually loving your neighbor, loving righteousness, loving your enemy. All of those things are not natural to us. They're supernatural. So if we see those things present in our life, we can be assured that we are, that we're saved. And let me say this to you as well. The opposite is also true. Everyone who does not have these signs in their life is lost. Everyone who does not exhibit true fruit of the Spirit... He says over and over again in this book, if you do not love your brother, you do not love God. If you do not love righteousness, you do not love God. The opposite is also true that everyone who does not exhibit the Spirit of God in their life is not been born of God. Everyone. It is a universal statement that is always defined, the Greek word pos is always defined by its context, um, whether it be whoever loves his neighbor, whoever believes, whoever, whoever, you'll see that quite a bit, or whosoever. It's, all, it's also used in John 3.16 to describe whoever believes or whosoever believes. 
So it is a universal truth. This is a universal truth. Anyone and everyone who exhibits the Spirit of God in their life is, has been born again. Anyone who does not exhibit the Spirit of God in their life has not been born again. And, 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 and really, that's the end of the argument. You can argue with that all you want. This is God's Word. This is what God says to us in His Word. If we do not love our neighbor, if we do not love our brother, if we do not love righteousness, then we have not been born of God. So it's a universal truth, number one. Number two, it is tangible evidence. Okay? There were four things that we looked at in this book that prove that we're, that we're truly Christians. They're all heart things. Repentance, faith, submission, and love. And every one of them results in action. Okay, so, so in other words, a repentant heart results in a repentant life. A faith-filled heart results in a faith-filled life. A submissive heart results in a submissive life. A loving heart results in a loving life. This is why James says, if you see your brother in need, and, and 1 John says the same thing, if you see your brother in need but you close your heart to them or you don't help them, then the love of God is not in you. So the, 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 the things that God changes about us on the inside ultimately come to be seen on the outside. I've heard people say before, well, I'm, 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 I love them on the inside. I just don't love them on the outside. Or, or I love them, I just don't. I just don't like them, right? So we're, basically we're saying, I wanna, I'm going to excuse my actions towards them, but deep down inside I know that God requires me to love them, so I do actually love them. And, and honestly what we do is we convince ourselves justify ourselves would be a better word for it. We justify ourselves in the fact that we have a heart problem. Instead of saying, why don't I love them? What, what's wrong with me that I cannot love them? God loves me. Why can't I love other people? So it, it's a, these are tangible evidences. They are seen in your daily life. If you're a Christian this morning, God has worked something out of you that is unique to his spirit's power that is in opposition to your fleshly nature. In other words, you have seen something come out of you at some point in time in your life that wasn't naturally in you. I had a friend, I think I told you this story before. I've only been here seven months and I'm already repeating stories, so that's bad, that's bad right? But I had a friend, he asked me this question. He's like, Pastor John, I was his pastor, first church I pastored in Ohio. He's like, Pastor John, how can I witness to my family the gospel? And I asked him, I said, his name was Tony. Nobody knows him in here, so it's okay for me to tell you his name. He said to me, I said to him, Tony, I said, what's your biggest struggle? What's the biggest struggle that you have in your life? He says, he says, I'm an angry person. I asked him, I said, does everyone in your life know that you're an angry person? And he said, everyone in my life knows that I'm an angry person. And he kind of said it facetiously because everyone knows that he's an angry person. Believe me, I know that he's an angry person. And here's what I said to him, when? 
You want to witness to other people that Christ lives in you? You want to witness to other people that Christ is bigger? You want to witness to other people that Christ is better? You want to witness to other people that Christ is superior and supreme? Then you win over the biggest struggle that you have in your life. And you manifest that to them, and they'll look at you and they'll say to you, there's something different about you. What is it? And you know what you get to do at that point in time? You get to share the gospel with them. Does that make sense? These, these spiritual truths about us need to be, if it's true, they need to be coming out of us. They need to be coming through us. God has worked them in us, and we're, we're to live them out. Number three, and this is where we're going to slow down a little bit. Okay? Number one, it's a universal truth. Number two, it has tangible evidence. If you're truly a Christian, it will be evident. It will be prevalent in your life. Number three, it is a supernatural work. The work of being saved and the work of being born again is a supernatural work. The reason why Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter number three, here he is, he's wrestling with one of the most religious men that was alive during that day. He is wrestling with him over how and what to do to be saved. And Nicodemus was a man that, that Jesus could have told him anything that he could have done ceremonially, and Nicodemus would have done it. There wasn't anything that Nicodemus wasn't willing to sacrifice in and of himself to be accepted or to be a part of the religious rite. And here's what Jesus says to Nicodemus, and here's what Jesus says to us in 1 John. He says, you must be born again. What Jesus Christ does is he takes all ability for Nicodemus to save himself, for Nicodemus to impact his, his fallen, depraved condition. He takes it all out of Nicodemus' hands. He strips Nicodemus of all right and authority to do anything about his fallen condition, and he takes control back. Folks, this is one of the hardest things about Christianity, is Christianity is not about being in control. Christianity is about letting go. Christianity is about embracing someone else who has accomplished everything on your behalf and for you. It's not doing things to assist Jesus. It's not doing things to add to what Jesus has done. Christianity is about embracing everything that Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. And that because of that, fruits begin to flow out of your life. Because what Jesus Christ has done, you become a fruitful believer, not so that you can become one. Does that make sense? This is a supernatural work of God. For anyone to come to Jesus Christ, it is a supernatural work. This is why John says that, uses the term, you must be born again. What's interesting, as you follow the flow of the text, Nicodemus in John 3 asks the question, what do I have to do, climb back into my mother's womb and be born? Do you know what? This, this is an absurd question, right? But you know what Jesus never does? Jesus never minimizes that question, and he never answers the question in such a way that that's not how it happens. In other words, Jesus gives credit to the question saying, stating this, yes, just as impossible as it is for you to climb back in your mother's womb, it is impossible for you to save yourself. 
just as impossible as it is, Nicodemus. Yes, go with your line of thinking, Nicodemus, just as impossible as it is for you to be born out of your mother's womb again, it is impossible for you to do something to save yourself. Salvation is supernatural. It's something that God does for us, God does to us, God does through us. And it is in no way something that we assist him with. We are complete beneficiaries of it. We know, if you've had children, you know that that child did not participate in their birth, right? They were a product of what you did, moms. Can I get an amen? Yeah, I knew I could get how many ever ladies that have had children amening in here on that one, right? Now, imagine not just the Lord using that as an example of how salvation happens, but going one step further and saying, now you've got to be born again. We talk about supernatural. It is a supernatural work of God. And that's why John 3, 8 says, the wind blows, the spirit blows where he wants to. You hear the sounds of it, you see the effects of it, but you have no control over it at all. Such is everyone who has been born of God. Listen, when God's spirit blows into your world, you'll know he was there. You'll know he was there. You may not know why he was there. Matter of fact, if you're truly a Christian, you won't know why he's there. You will say, I had, I had nothing to offer him. I had no reason at all for the Spirit of God to blow on me. Right? It's the people that I'm more concerned about that would say, yeah, the Spirit of God blew on me, but it was because I was here and I did this and this. And No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Spirit of God blows where he wants to. Here's what we do. When the Spirit of God blows on us, we fall on our knees and we praise him that he's blown on us. Amen? If you're saved this morning, it's because God chose to show you extraordinary favor beyond anything that you ever deserved or merited or earned. Isn't that true? Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 10, you don't have to turn there. You know the story. Paul talking about, I was once dead in my trespasses and sins, but God made me alive. Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb in John chapter number 11, and he tells Lazarus to come out. It's like, get the picture for a moment. Jesus tells a dead guy to get up and come out. Does he have any ability to do that? Did Lazarus have any ability to get up out of the grave and come out? Of course not. But Jesus commanded something of him that was impossible for him to do, And Jesus caused something of him that was impossible for him to do. That's what salvation is. That's the gospel. Jesus commands of us what we cannot do, and Jesus creates in us and creates through us that which is impossible for us to do. Is the gospel simple? The answer is yes. Is the gospel impossible? The answer is yes. Listen to what he says in Luke 16. You're familiar with the passage about Lazarus and the rich man, right? Lazarus, the rich man, had all that he wanted in this life, and he dies and he goes to a devil's hell. Lazarus has nothing. He's tormented 
day, day in and day out with eating the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, he ends up in Abraham's bosom or paradise. Here's what the rich man says. God, please, Father Abraham, please send someone to my five brothers who, that they may not come to this place. And here's what Father Abraham says to him. Luke 16, 31, he said to them, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, I'll tell you this, that statement doesn't make any sense because if somebody rose from the dead and told me something, I, I would believe it, right? But here's what Father Abraham understands. No one will believe. Period. No one. There is nothing spectacular that you're going to be able to do to get someone to believe. It is Christ's work. It is God's work in an individual. It is supernatural in how it happens. Again, we have the birth and we have the dead rising from the grave. These are both supernatural events, things that we don't affect, things that we have done to us. It is supernatural in what it causes the new birth is supernatural in what it causes as well. Write these three things down. It's called the new birth, number one, because we are given a new start. There is nothing else, there, there is absolutely no other way in life that you can start over again except in and through Jesus Christ. If you committed one sin in your past, there is zero ways that you can actually erase that sin and, be, and have it gone away other than by doing it through Jesus Christ. The new birth says to me that here's a supernatural work that I will take all of your past sins and I will wipe your slate clean and I will give you a new beginning. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, everything has become new. We get a new beginning. This is a miracle of God. It's not something that we can cause on our own. We can't go out and perform a thousand good deeds to erase our bad deeds, right? It is a supernatural work of God. Hebrews 10, verse 16 and 17 says, This is the covenant that I have made with them after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law in their heart, and I will write them on their minds, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. We get a new beginning, amen? In Christ Jesus, the miracle is we get to start over. But here's what's interesting. The story doesn't stop there. If we started over, do you know what would happen to me if I, started, if I, got a, if I was given a fresh start? If I was given a fresh start today, if Jesus says, I'm erasing all of your past, John, it's all gone, you get to begin all over again. Do you know how long that would last? Well, you have a lot of faith in me, brother. Ten minutes. I was thinking more along the five-minute line. It wouldn't last very long. So get this. God not only gives us a new beginning. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and then we became one with him through faith, we are given a completely new start, right? All of our sins are wiped clean. Our slate is completely, it's like that whiteboard. You just clean it off, right? 
And it's not like the whiteboards that we have over there because they leave stains. It's the kind that get really, really clean, right? Watch this. We also get a new standing. We're not just starting over. But here's what happens when a person comes to embrace Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the law is nailed to the cross. In other words, there's no more law against them. So from that point forward, they are no longer under the law, but they are under grace. Does grace notice the ills that we do or just the goods that we do? Does grace keep track of our failures or just our successes? Is grace all about God looking at us and saying, I show you favor even though you do not deserve it? From the point that I am saved, I am no longer under the condemnation. Romans 8 and verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation. Not there is now therefore some condemnation. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? There is no condemnation for this one reason. Not that I don't sin still, but I am no longer under the, I'm no longer under the law. You say, Pastor John, don't say that. People will sin. No, they won't. Grace does not motivate sin. Romans chapter number 7 says that the law is what motivates sin. The more law you have, the more sinful people become. The more grace you have, the more righteous people become. The righteous, the grace of God is what motivates us not to sin. It's because he loves us, not because we're scared. Does that make sense? It's so important that we understand this. We have a new standing in Christ. We are no longer under the law, but we are now under grace. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians. Chapter 2. The Bible says in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which we were also raised from, with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God hath made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. It's talking about the law. The law goes on to say that this is set aside, nailing it to the cross. The law has been satisfied. The law has been completed. The law has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ 100%, and it has been imputed to us. Amen? I'll give you another word for imputed. It's been gifted to you. Everything that Jesus Christ did is credited to you, and everything that you did was credited to him. We have a new start, and we have a new standing Therefore, from the day that we're saved until the day that we die, God is counting up by grace. The day that you're born to the day that you're saved, God is counting up according to the law. Does that make sense? We have a new standing. Number three, in regards to the supernatural work, what it causes, we have a new supervisor. Simply meaning this, we're no longer going to continue to live in the sin that, was, that ensnared us before we, when we were under the law. We're, we're free from that bondage and free from that snare. I would encourage you with this one to 
spend some time reading um, Romans chapter number five and Romans chapter number six. He says in John 15 and verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, the Bible bids us, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 6 and verse 44 says, no one can come to the Lord lest the Father who sent him brings them there. Second Timothy, all throughout Scripture, we're commanded to repent. Second Timothy 2.25 tells us that we cannot repent unless God grants it to us. All throughout Scripture, we're told to place our faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8.9 and Romans 12.3 tells us that faith is a gift from God. What we learn is this, that everything that God requires of us is something that God has to accomplish for us. It's a supernatural work. 1 Peter 1, 22 through 23 says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a, sincere, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly with a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. It's a supernatural work. Number four, it's from a divine source. The word again in the Greek literally means two things. It means born again, meaning I am born a second time or over again, but it has a secondary meaning of being born from above. And you'll actually see interchange throughout the book of 1 John, the idea of being born of God. It's not just that we experience the supernatural, but it's that we experience the divinely supernatural. I, I, I would not be far-fetched to say that people can see the supernatural in our world today and it's the work of the devil, right? So it's not just that you see supernatural things happening, but it's that you see divinely supernatural things happening. We, we, we would all love to walk up and smack somebody on the head and say that they're healed, right? Did you know that there's nowhere in Scripture that God says if you can heal somebody, that confirms that you're a Christian? Nowhere. But what we don't like is the Lord say, hey, go love your enemy. I'd rather go smack somebody on the head and heal them, right? Those are the supernatural things. Those are the things that come from our heart. And we know that God is in us when we see those things coming through us. John 8, 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God or born of God. John 10, 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. This is not just a supernatural thing, but it is a spiritual thing. It is a divine thing. Now, I want to give you some responses, three responses to these truths. We, we need to understand this, that the, the, the new birth is something that God does. It's something that God performs. It's his work. It's at his will. It's according to his command. The, 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 uh, Christ accomplished it. The Holy Spirit carries it out, and God planned it. All of it is of God. It's all supernatural of God. Now, how we respond to this is really, really, really important. Remember this. God is asking us to do things that we cannot do on our own. When God says to, be, to, when God says to repent, 
When God says to believe, when God says to love your neighbor, when God says all of these things that are evidences of our salvation, it's the same as if when Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. He's demanding or requiring something of us that we cannot do on our own. We have no ability to do it on our own. The same way that Jesus told the rich man in Matthew 19, hey, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. That was not within his abilities. When he told Nicodemus, you must be born again, that was not within his abilities. In John 2 or John 4, he tells the woman at the well about all of her husbands. He goes right to the place where they have no abilities. He strips it from them and he takes control back. The Bible tells us that salvation is the Lord's. It is his and not ours. Let me give you three responses to these truths And we respond to these truths every day, and especially amongst modern-day religiosity, these truths get handled all of the time. Three responses to these truths. Number one is a stubborn response. We respond to this stubbornly. In other words, we we refuse to accept the supernatural nature of salvation, And because we refuse to accept the supernatural nature of salvation, we create some alternative, right? Okay, we can be saved today by being baptized. We can be saved today by taking the Lord's Supper. We can be saved today by doing our catechisms. We can be saved today by coming to church on Sunday, by putting money in the offering plate. We can be saved today, quote unquote, according to modern day evangelicalism, everybody has a way by which you can be saved, Right? There is something that you can do that you can say, hey, hey, John, how do you know that you're saved? Well, you know, I said or did this sometime in my life, and I know that I'm saved because of that. Okay, you missed the boat because your salvation is not based upon anything that you have done, correct? So what happens with this stubborn response to the idea that God is in complete control of your eternal destiny is that people refuse to let God be in complete control of their eternal destiny, and therefore they create an alternative to what the Bible teaches. I have a a, a friend of mine once said this to me. We were talking about this theology, and their response to me was this. If you believe that God is in complete control of your children's salvation, what hope do you have that they'll ever be saved? And my response to them was simply this, I hope in the grace of God more than I hope in their ability to do anything that is salvific earning. I hope more in God's grace to transform their lives than I hope in them transforming their own lives. Amen? They have no ability on their own. My hope is not in them. My hope is in him. Do you know people that move to this realm are people who do not see the grace and mercy and kindness of God, but they see his justice and wrath in everything? They're completely and totally afraid of him, so they create an alternative way of salvation so that they can then take control from him. If God, if it was God's choice to save me or not save me, he would definitely not save me. That's their mindset. They do not believe in a gracious God. They believe in a, in, a, in a mean God. And that's natural because they do not have the 
When you get saved, you know what? You see God differently. He's not the same as he was before. He is kind. He is loving. He is compassionate. But somebody who sees God in his justice is going to naturally try to create an alternative to their way of salvation. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. Listen to what happens in John 6. Jesus tells them in John 6, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father brings them there. He says in verse 55 and verse 65 and 66, and he said to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to them by the Father. So who's in control of anybody coming to Jesus? Exactly. Verse 44 says the same thing. No one comes to Jesus lest they are brought him, brought to him by the Father. Lest they are drawn to him by the Father. Here's what he says in verse, he says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That made them mad. That made them upset. That they could not do something on their own. But that God the Father had to do something for them. We are seeing this today in our culture. We're seeing this in our world Religion setting out to make alternative ways to come to the Father through the, the things that we accomplish. You're familiar with John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father lest they come through me. So we respond, number one, stubbornly, and we create alternatives, religious alternatives to get us into heaven, to get us saved. Number two, we respond to this truth self-righteously. Now, these are the people who refuse to acknowledge the supernatural nature of salvation, but don't deny the evidences of salvation. In other words, these are the people who say, okay, the evidence of salvation is that I'm supposed to love my brother, so I'll love my brother on my own. So the evidence of salvation is for me to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, so I will take my own faith and I will believe in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. In effect, what they're doing is, is they're allowing for, the, allowing for the expectations, but refusing that those expectations are supernatural expectations. Refusing to acknowledge the fact that they cannot do any of those expectations that God requires of them for salvation. Does that make sense? It's so important that we don't, we don't say, okay, God wants me to love my neighbor, so therefore I'm going to love my neighbor so that I can be saved. You can't love your neighbor in order to be saved. You need to be saved so that you can love your neighbor. So what they do is they take the, the supernatural and they make it into something that is humanly possible. They respond self-righteously. Again, John 15 and verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit from apart from me. You can do, you can do nothing. So people respond to this truth of the Lord being sovereign over his own salvation, stubbornly creating alternatives, self-righteously saying that we can accomplish what God requires of us of it on our own. And, and listen, folks, here's where people, people get really, really, they, they get their, um, I, don't, I don't know what the analogy, the right analogy is. They get frustrated with this because 
they cannot get their arms around the fact that unless God sovereignly acted in this world to bring about salvation, that zero people would be saved. Their picture that they get from a Calvinistic perspective is this, that God is up in heaven. All of these people are down here saying, God, please save me, please save me, please save me. And God is up in heaven saying, no, you are not one of the chosen. That's their perception of it. The, alter- the, the, the actual truth is that God is up in heaven with his arms stretched wide and mankind is saying, I don't want anything to do with you. If it weren't for God, you say, no one can come to Jesus unless God the Father brings him there. Well, that's not very fair. Unless you see it as this, that no one would come to Jesus unless God the Father brought them there. The whole world would be condemned. The whole world would be damned if Jesus Christ and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit didn't do everything for us. Amen? It's the truth. And yet we want to respond with, we can do it. We can't do it. The last thing is to respond to it savingly. To respond to it savingly. Number one, we respond to the reality that we are sinners and we can do nothing about it by being broken. We respond to the reality that we are sinners and we can do nothing about it by being broken. The one thing that keeps the law of God from crushing people that need to be crushed is the fact that they think they can do something about it. The law of God is meant to annihilate the self-righteous pride that is ingrained within any and every one of us and to cause us to crumble down into nothingness. And Jesus comes along the way and he picks us up and he makes something out of us. You see, the problem is this, folks. If the law of God doesn't accomplish its work, then Jesus Christ will not accomplish his work. Jesus says to us in Isaiah 66 and verse 2, Jesus says, all these things my hands have made, and so all of these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, or this is the one to whom I will pay attention. This is the one to whom I will focus. He who is of a humble and contrite spirit and trembles at my word. You want to get God's attention for salvation? You get God's attention for salvation, not by thinking much of yourself, but by being broken before God and realizing that you have nothing to offer him. The King James Version actually says that God pays attention and focuses on those who are of a broken and a contrite spirit. The exact same thing that Jesus, that, that the Lord tells David in Psalm 51 when, he's, when he has committed that sin. He says, David, sacrifices and offerings and all of the things that you can bring to me, I don't desire. But here's what I desire, that you have a broken and a contrite spirit. Do you know what we need, folks, as Americans? Do you know what we need as church-going people? We need to be broken before God. We need to leave salvation in his hands, and we need to come to him as a crumbled heap of nothingness and say, God, please, please deliver me. Please save me from sin and from self and from everything. And do you know something? Jesus Christ is quick to pick those pieces up, is he not? Is he not? 
Jesus' greatest, greatest war in the scriptures was not with the people who were broken. It was not with the drunks and the prostitutes. Jesus' greatest struggle was with people like us. It's true. The religious people was who he wrestled with the most, not those who were broken about who they were. The Bible says in Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world might become guilty before God. You say, Pastor John, what do I do? I can't do anything about my salvation. What can I do? You can come before God broken. You can come before God empty. You can come before God pleading. And you can know that God is merciful and gracious to bring deliverance. Broken, number one. Number two, humble. We are humbled. We are broken that we are sinners and we can do nothing about it. We are humbled that salvation comes as the result of Jesus Christ's full payment for our sins. We are humbled by the reality that Jesus Christ accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. And we, like a little child who can do nothing, we come and we cling to the feet of Jesus. We cling to the cross and we trust that everything he did for us was sufficient. And it was, wasn't it? But folks, listen, the reality of it is, is those who do not cling, do not go to heaven. We must come humbly. Jesus says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the the humble. Why do we live in such a religiously proud world? Because Satan knows exactly what is going to oppose the gospel. It's not the drunk. It's not the homeless or the prostitute that oppose the gospel. It is the self-righteous that oppose the gospel. Number three, repentant. We come repentant. Repentant of our sins, repentant of our unbelief, repentant of anything that we trust other than Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes it will obtain mercy. We come repentant. Accepting and acknowledging the fact that we have nothing to offer God. I've often found that interesting. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all righteousness, right? Our attitude is as we come to God and we say, I'm sorry for what I've done, and we walk away thinking because we apologized that, that's, that we deserve to be forgiven. That's not what the text says. He says, confess the fact that you're not worthy of forgiveness. That's what he says. Confess the fact that you're not worthy and I will embrace you. We make ourselves worthy in our minds by saying sorry. How many of you have ever said sorry to somebody and they didn't, they didn't reciprocate and it made you mad? Guess what? You weren't sorry. Does that make sense? Sorry does not depend on the reciprocation. It's the attitude of our hearts. We come before God and we confess, not apologize, confess. that we are completely unworthy. And we kneel before a merciful and gracious God. And he sends his own son into this world to rip us out of the prisons of sin and to set us free to live for him. 
The last thing is dependence. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. My encouragement to you this morning in closing, I'm going to turn to Luke. My encouragement to this, you this morning in closing, you say, Pastor John, what do I do? I, I don't believe I'm born again. I don't know that the, the presence of God is within me. I've never experienced any of these fruits that you're talking about where the supernatural power of God is seen through me. My encouragement to you this morning is come to Jesus Christ broken. Come to him empty. Come to him acknowledging and accepting that you have nothing to bring him and embrace the work that he has accomplished for you. Luke chapter number 18, and I close with this passage of Scripture. In verse 9, the Bible says, He also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. And you'll notice what this man simply does is he gives God a list of reasons why God should show him grace. When was the last time that we prayed and gave God a list of reasons of why he should show us grace? God will never show grace because you deserve it. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, our salvation, our spiritual life is in God's hands. And we can come to him. We cannot demand of him. We cannot require of him. We cannot do anything by which he owes us. But we can come to him broken. We can come to him repentant. We can come to him empty. We can embrace what he has done in Christ for us. And we can believe that our God is merciful and our God is gracious. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the ones that are here today. Thank you, Lord God, for your grace and your goodness to us. Thank you for the salvation that you give us. Thank you, Lord God, that you are in control of it that we can be mindful of the fact that lest you were in control of it, we would not be saved. Because you're in control of it, we are saved. We pray, Lord God, that you would help these truths to resonate in our hearts, that we would go home and be thankful and honor you for what you have done in us, for us, and through us. In Christ's name, amen. We are closing the service a little bit differently today um, in honors of Ron's recovery. And we thank you all for being here today. I hope that you were blessed by being here. You'll take these thoughts home and and chew on them. Uh, Have a blessed week. God bless you.